I'm envisioning them in one of their sleep-ins where they're in the bed <laughs> and John accidentally turns on pop radio and just hears that <laughs> and he's like "Ooh, what's sweetheart what's this turn oh, this God. up they're just laying there like oh I guess I better stop laying on my fat ass for peace and get up <laughs> and actually do something <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where experienced musicians and lifelong friends work our way through the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week, we pick an album at random from the list. We listen to it. We analyze it. We deliver some praise. We heap some scorn and ultimately give you our jackass opinions on whether or not it deserves to be on the list. At the end of each episode, we'll all vote on whether or not you actually need to listen to the album at which point we'll pick another album, rinse, lather, and repeat. So this week we've been listening to the B-52's self-titled album, The B-52's, which was released on July 6th of 1979. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the album, don't worry. We're going to be hitting you with plenty of clips and context as we work our way through. We'll also publish a playlist that contains all the random crap I'm sure we'll talk about and reference today throughout the episode. Now, before we get any further into the podcast, we've got a special guest joining us today, a good friend of everyone on the show, a guy I've known for 25 years. My God. He's, <laughs> he, he's been working in television and radio for 20 years as a writer and a producer. He's also part of a podcast that is celebrating their 10th year, a podcast called You Like the Worst Stuff. A Decade of Disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the title of the 10-year anniversary <laughs> That'll episode? be our anthology, yeah. <laughs> it's the birthday card I got from my parents when I turned 40. <laughs> like... His podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You Like the Worst Stuff is deep into video games and random pop culture stuff. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you Tony Sadowski. Thanks, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. I have known these fellows for a long time. I, I am not an experienced musician, though I did steal one of Adam's acoustic guitars somewhere in college for a Guitar One course. It sits here next to me in the basement, and I do I do strum at it during boring meetings. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be on the show. I've been listening for a while, and I'm excited to dig into this album. Tony, it's great to have you. Is it the guitar with the nylon strings? And yes, the action, it is. The action is about an inch <laughs> off the neck, so you bleed oh, when yeah. you go to play. <laughs> yes, there it is. Mm. Oh, man. In all honesty, Tony, that's like your credentials of being a musician. It's equal to about half the guitar players out there. <laughs> right. I have one. I played it in college a bit. I strum it sometimes. Right. I'm always... I've got like I've got like a four or five song coffee house set that I could rock through at any moment. So I'm oh, pretty ready to go. That... <laughs> Just slow down Alanis Morissette's cover. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I'm always running into other dads that are like, "Yo, you play music? I play music too." And I'm like, "You own a guitar, all right? Do like, you? Right, right, let's right. be. Do you really? Honest. I'm not trying to say I'm super highfalutin, but like." You own a guitar and you can play an Oasis song or two. Like, come on, if, buddy. If you're not highfalutin about music, Tom, I don't know who is, buddy. And you're on the wrong podcast, by the way, as well. If you're not. Yeah. Yeah, well, join the club. So I want to jump right in and give a little flavor of the album we're talking about this week. 
And then we'll get into some intros from the rest of our cast of characters here, as well as some quick Twitter length reviews. So here they are, the self-proclaimed weirdos, the B-52s, with their debut track, Planet Claire. there you have it that that was the the first track from our self-proclaimed weirdos speaking of self-proclaimed weirdos let's work our way around the room for some quick intros yeah this is rob here and my twitter length review of this record is this sounds like a band that heard monster mash and thought what if we based our entire careers (laughs) spanning multiple decades on that jam nice burn tom um my uh, my quick review is, I think this is an alternate timeline where John Waters' parents gave him a guitar instead of a camera when he was 12, <laughs> and uh, he just decided to bring all that weird energy to music instead of films, uh, but I kind of dig it. <laughs> Tony. Well, I already introduced myself, so uh, here's my tweet-length review. The B-52s are the musical equivalent of cilantro. You're either cool with them, or they taste like soap. (laughs) Okay. And hi, everyone. This is Adam. My quick review is that these guys are just a couple blast beats away from being a system of a down album. Uh, They they are, however, I would say, because they're total spazzes. If you ever listen to a system of a down album, I could totally see, well, I don't know if they had the B-52s in uh, Latvia or Croatia, wherever the system... I believe of... they're Armenian. <laughs> Armenian, yes. thank you. Yes. But no, but my, my, my truthful review is that this is definitely art first, music second. So a little history on the band and the album. Technically, the band formed in 1976 in Athens, Georgia, which was quickly becoming a bit of a musical scene Now, the way the band members tell it is that they formed the band over some drinks at a bar, which is not not at all unfamiliar to how bands start. This band started the same way. So just as a little trivia for our listeners and everybody on this call that you can bring up at your next dinner party, what was the drink that was used to kind of kickstart this band? I'm going to give you three options here, okay? Was it a bottle of Jack Daniels? A multi-user tropical drink called a flaming volcano, or an old milk jug filled with tang and antifreeze. <laughs> I'm gonna go with volcano, baby. There you go. Yes, yes, it is in fact a flaming volcano. They all got together <laughs> at a Chinese restaurant, had a flaming volcano, and decided to start up this band. You know, I gotta tell you, this band definitely sounds like a bunch of people that would go to a Chinese restaurant to order tiki bar drinks and then <laughs> get the flaming volcano. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We should totally be in a band. Yeah, Yeah, can you sing? Oh, no, no, I can't sing. But I'm going to be the front man. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wasn't able to find out what they were like in high school, but these guys definitely have theater nerd vibes. So I, I know that, that Cindy Wilson lived in Georgia growing up her pretty much her whole life. She was in the South. Uh, Ricky, her brother, was traveling Europe for a while, uh, and then he came back around this time, and they kind of caught up a bit. They hadn't seen each other in quite a while. And uh, Fred Schneider and uh, Kate Pearson came from New Jersey and just came into, I think, the Athens scene. I believe Kate was married to an English dude or something, and they went down there at the time together, and they all just kind of met up there. That would explain Fred, Fred's lack of an accent. He does not. Have, no, no, they're from Jersey. I was expecting when he talked it was going to be a southern Georgia draw, but it was not. You couldn't get it from his singing, which is essentially him talking? <laughs> <laughs> That's not is my accent. <laughs> yeah, I could listen to a whole spate of covers of, of the classics. Exactly. <laughs> I think they were built for that album, but we never got it. So their sound has been described as quirky new wave, dancey, surf music, uh, just a, a whole host of, of different adjectives used to describe these guys. They mentioned that they loved Yoko Ono. They loved the Velvet Underground growing up. I'm sure you Uh-oh. can. <laughs> can you hear the influence? I'm not sure if you can. Their first gig was at a friend's Valentine's Day party in 1977. From there, they recorded Rock Lobster at a very small label in Atlanta called DB Records. That sold 20,000 singles. And at that point, they started booking gigs in New York City, and that buzz started to grow. So they signed on with Island Records and promptly recorded their first album in the Bahamas. They re-recorded Rock Lobster. So I'm, I'm not sure what that initial version sounded like, but I would love to hear what, what the... Uh, the cassette in a room. Yeah, it feels like so the... polished and edited down. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and like the lyrics were really, really drilled. Yes. Yeah. The producer was just hounding it. them on that it's one. A good it's point. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More metaphors, please. <laughs> you see, what you have to understand is it wasn't a rock. Uh, <laughs> what What was it? It turns out, <laughs> this is going to be a surprise to some of you, it was a rock lobster. So Rob, you make a good point though that like in the intervening years, it's it seems like they never wrote the lyrics down. They're just like that's not the point, man. We gotta we gotta keep it loose. So so Fred Fred Snyder was a was a poet. That's what he he listed himself as, which is which is amazing. And 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 I'm sure that he has a prolific poetry career. And I would love to read his book of poems at some point and sit it on my shelf alongside like Emily Dickinson. But I, I heard a good anecdote about this, which oh, is he published, he published, self-published a book of poems where he hand wrote 100 copies. And that oh was the, that was the print. <laughs> See, again, it is the art first. <laughs> so also, I, I thought um, just interesting sort of side tangential note. I thought it was cool that they recorded this in the Bahamas with the founder of Island Records and the guy who, according to some, is the single-handedly most responsible for bringing reggae to the world. <laughs> okay. He's, he was an English guy who spent his childhood in Jamaica and then had this experience where he almost drowned because his ship ran ashore and some Rasta fishermen saved him. And then he had this deep spiritual connection to Rastafarianism. <laughs> who so amongst he, us can say? Right, right. So he felt like he had to propagate. So he helped popularize Bob Marley, all, all those early Jamaican recordings, he recorded them, and then he took them back to England and sold them and popular, started to popularize that craze in the uh, 60s. 
So the producer, Chris Blackwell, you mentioned, he's the, the founder of Island Records. He produced this album and deliberately kept it raw, no overdubs, very little effects. The drummer, Keith Strickland, said he was he was initially appalled listening to it because it just sounded very kind of rinky-dinky, hollow, and just overdriven, and he wasn't really into it, but they, they ultimately wound up trusting Chris Blackwell. And it it worked you you've got you've got an an album that definitely went platinum and is a bit legendary yeah i think some of that rawness in in addition to obviously the the playful rockin artsy weird tunes that they have on here is probably why this one is singled out on this list for you know kind of encapsulating what the b52s are and sound like and have done in in you know in the music world and as they as their career went, and this is this is a band that has changed form over time. They they have expanded their sound. It may not be noticeable to everybody, but uh, it, it, it they they have changed a little bit. And here here I, I I'm going to out myself we as did like the mash. as it like a B fifty twos you know fan. I've listened to like all of their stuff and. Like I grew up in, and I was it like it would have been like grade like middle school to high school era when like co- or was Cosmic Thing came out. I had a cassette right. of that. I played it to death, and <laughs> like awesome. I that was that was the one that later on. Okay, then, then their Time Capsule Greatest Hits came out, and then in college I like dug into like this album and like Wild Party and all their other stuff or Wild Thing whatever it was, and uh, yeah, they're 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 just they're a singular force in music. They they do one specific weird thing. And I happen to dig it. <laughs> well, just before we heap too much praise on them, let me just uh, counter that. <laughs> I think I was expecting, because like you, I first heard about them in the MTV era, the Cosmic Thing era, which was mm-hmm. their 1989, 10 years hence album that had Love Shack and Rome on it. And so when I, I was excited to listen to this record, and I was expecting more tunefulness and more thought put into song. I'm not even sure you can call these songs. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I'm not saying I totally it's I'm not saying it's totally worthless. I think the rhythm section is cool and you know, I'll have some good things to say about it too. But I was unpleasantly surprised that there wasn't a little more song structure. Let me put it that way. I and I heard just to follow up on the origin story, that they got drunk at that Chinese restaurant and then went to a start a drunken jam, and that was how the band formed. And they said they wanted to keep the spirit of that night going for their entire career, which is to say they never wrote down lyrics. They improvised all of them. (laughs) That explains a lot. That does explain a lot. Right. It sounds, again, we've we've talked about this in previous episodes, but like maybe they cracked the code. Maybe they're just like, yeah, the other way is hard. This way is easy. This way I just get to kind of drink and fuck off and then every once in a while <laughs> we, go into the we studio. We sold a million yeah. records doing this one, right. so why change? Cindy Wilson at some point said one of their producers told them that if you're having fun, you can just ride this forever. And I think they took it to heart because yeah. they have been just doing this thing ever since. And it has worked off and on. They're still a thing. They still Pe- exist. People are still yeah. showing up at the shows, yeah. Oh, I did. I heard this slug line, band approved sort of slug line about the band that I thought was interesting. It was trying to point out that they were separate from their other new wave and kind of punk, you know, because when they went up to New York, they played CBGBs and they were kind of a part of that early scene. Uh, We often talk about the broad meaning of punk and and things like that and new wave. But anyway, it was saying they're even demographically different, that nothing like the rest of that world. 
occupied by, by bands like Talking Heads and Devo. And so they called themselves 40% female, 60% Southern, 80% queer, and 100% fun. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. One, nice thing elevator I, pitch. one thing I do have to say is I give Fred Schneider a ton of credit for being, you know, even as a kid, when I didn't really know what gay was, I knew he was gay. Right. And this is 1976 Georgia. I cannot imagine right. that it was the most welcoming environment. But he knew what he he knew who he was. He knew what he wanted to do. There's the funny story that he told about, like, coming out to his mother. And she was just like, yeah, I know. Like, of <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it, it takes a lot of balls to do that, honestly. And this is you know, absolutely when they formed in 76. We're talking like that's like Royal Scam was coming out that year. Like, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, world, man. It, was it was this kind of sound was not what the audiences no. were clamoring for. No, he was unabashedly himself the whole time. Yeah. And in 79, the, the I think the same month that this was released, Donna Summers had two of the slots in the top three and they were all disco songs. I think there were four out of the top five songs that were disco when this came out. So definitely a very different sound. I also think that whole Fred thing as well, when you watch these guys. So they had their big breakout moment was on SNL in 1980. They were on an episode with Terry Garr, and they did their two songs. They did Rock Lobster and... Dance This Mess Around. Thank you, yes, Dance This Mess Around. And it, it was it's just a sight to behold, watching... Yeah. Watching them on stage, it was just out of this world. I couldn't help but smile, even though they were just making noise at one point. I, you know, they were shrieking, and he's playing like a little toy piano, and it's just bizarre. But I smile because they're having a friggin' blast. And so what I, I get what it. I love about them just making those noises and like Cindy Wilson's guttural like grunt squeal thing that she does, <laughs> like it's less about the lyric itself than how she's performing it and the sound that her voice makes whether or not you hate it it's creating <laughs> it's creating a reaction it's it's meant to be heard and reacted to and the, I, I know you guys have talked before about like music you can just put on in the background and have there and i i feel like the b-52s defy that just by being aggressively weird all the time they're always doing something strange to make you pay attention to what they're doing. And that's the artsy thing. So if I had a complaint, though, in counterpoint to that, it's that they do exactly, in my mind, they do exactly one weird thing. And I give them full credit for that. They do definitely sound like they're having fun. But it, it's aggressively weird in one specific way. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on how I'm incorrect on that topic. But Oh, no, I, I don't think you are. I just, I, I, like, I, like I said, I think they're cilantro. I think you either are into their whole vibe. And it has taken slightly different shapes over the years. Like the sound that they, that they put out on Mesopotamia, you mentioned Talking Heads, like David Byrne produced that album. Mesopotamia had a little different sound. There was, you know, Quiche Lorraine and Mesopotamia and stuff on there. They started to play a little bit with what the sound of com combining their voices did and different kinds of production. When you get to Cosmic Thing, as we mentioned before, you get a little more pop sensibility. At, um, at, at what then, point did they start deploying the concept of melody? Because um, <laughs> it seems like they staunchly avoid it on this I don't think they're. I don't think melody is really a thing. I think they're, they go back to the beginning. 
I think from the B-52s on, they're just about that groove. And, like, if you're just at a party to dance and hang out and, like, dance at a concert and lose yourself in that, that's where they – that's their space. They want to occupy that. Well, I had – I have one complaint about many of the songs in this album is that I didn't actually find them to be danceable. I was picturing a party. And maybe that's just I'm tying it back to Love Shack and I'm picturing, like, you know, some – party off of some county road in georgia or something like that but so much of the drums were like super restrained and they kind of didn't give you that kind of dancey driviness to it that i was expecting to get a bit more of um you know like um i know we're gonna dive in and do a deep dive on some of these tracks but like planet claire there's like a 15 second part where it like picks up and i'm like yeah and then it just right back to this like super back no it's it's super minimalist in the arrangements and i i felt like they were just making a lot of space for their sort of three front men if you will to just Mm -hmm. shout whatever they felt into the mic and i just don't need three mcs at this party (laughs) and and, and even with one dj right your your mileage will vary based on your love for the three DJs. Here. <laughs> I I gotta say if this if you have the kind of band that will only ever really have a cult following, you know, you can you they could have gone further into the the pop side of things, but they kind of just didn't. And you you double down, right? It's they're they're like the Rocky Horror Show. Like your your people <laughs> are going to show up and sing along to every word in "There's a Moon in the Sky" and "Quiche Lorraine" and whatever else without a touch of irony, because they always they always grunt squeal in the same place. They yeah. always like Fred does his speech the same way every single time because they are committed to whatever this weird sound is. Like it's like a weird musical painting that they're like splatter painting on the stage every single time. Did you have a chance to see them live, actually, Tony? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's it's one of these ones we've talked about it with other records where I did I felt like that ex- part of the experience was missing from my understanding. Yeah, I and you know what? There are a lot of bands that just when you're there, it, it's a, it's such a mixed crowd. It's like going to, like, what one of the shows that like, like the 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 Zappa band members on like Project Object and that kind of thing. Like it's such a weird mix of like college music nerds and like old heads, and it is it is that feel, and everybody's just there to like dig the weird vibe and have a good time. And you come in, and it's like if you if the if you've been to a wedding in the past forty years or whatever thirty years, <laughs> you've heard Love Shack, and you probably right. know like Rome and, and like Rock, Rock Lobster and Private Idaho, and that's it, right? And so this like all of this stuff in their back catalog where they were a little like surf punkier and like. You know, doing this like like vocal skits in the middle of their songs, like you just don't know that that happened, and that that was I think I think that's the vibe where they were they were grooving and having the most fun early on. Like he w- he was making them laugh with his stupid like rock his stupid lobster poets or poetry. So they just made his, that a song and and screeched like a sea robin, whatever that meant. Or this, is, title, this is the thing title I'm having first. I'm having at its I'm best. having a hard time wrapping my head around this particular thing. Which is that, Adam? You hate Yoko Ono, and yeah, I, I think that there's such a comparison to a Yoko Ono performance. And I don't. Why do you like there this? Is. And hate they, Yoko they have. Ono? I mean, Adam was right. They legitimately have said that they they liked Yoko and looked up to her, were a fan of hers. And John had said listening to their performance in the B52s was part of what inspired him to like like wake Yoko up and make them record more music. 
which mm-hmm. I think is hilarious because yeah. I'm I'm envisioning them in one of their sleep-ins where they're in the bed <laughs> and John accidentally turns on pop radio and just hears that <laughs> and he's like, "Ooh, what's sweetheart? What's this? Turn this up." Right. So not only are they not only are they were they inspired by Yoko, but they're actually responsible for more Yoko they music. They made more Yoko happen. Oh, God. They're just laying there like, oh, I guess I, I guess I better stop laying on my fat ass for peace and get up right. and actually do something. <laughs> Start screeching. I think my my favorite little vignette that I'm picturing in my head of these guys is that they performed at Rock in Rio in 1985. Rock in Rio is a concert festival in Rio de Janeiro that went on for something like 20 years. They opened for Yes. <laughs> I can't imagine in Good 1985 Lord. being a Yes head and you think you're at the wrong con- What the hell is going on? And you're potentially, you know, a Brazilian most likely and just very confused at what's going on on stage. I that think you a- could put Steve Howe out there, just Steve Howe and a guitar, and he could make more sound than this band right. puts out. <laughs> <laughs> more yeah. filled out like chords right. and whatnot. Yeah. So we're going to jump into some songs, do a little deep dive. Uh, but first, I want to do the B-52s by the numbers. So we're going to hit some some quick stats here on this album. So this is the first of seven studio albums spanning 30 years for this band. It's nine songs across 39 minutes. Debut album peaked at 59 on the U.S. charts. It has sold more than 1 million copies in the U.S. Their song 52 Girls includes the names of only 24 girls. I'm sure you're very upset if you're keeping track at home. A little bit. This was recorded over the course of three weeks for around $32,000. Four of the five original members identify as LGBTQ. And the word lobster is mentioned on this album 26 times, which has got to be a record somewhere, unless it's, I don't know. It's a Jimmy Buffett album out there that's got more lobsters right. on it. <laughs> I also heard that Fred Schneider is a, a vegetarian, a vowed vegetarian for his entire life, is really into PETA, so he felt compelled to put out PSAs telling people not to eat lobster, even though he's strongly associated <laughs> yeah. with it. Oh Fred, God. man. <laughs> Commitment. Oh, that is awesome. Oops. Damn weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else overall thoughts on the album? I I, I I don't think there are a lot of other bands where several band members attempt to use their voices as theremins. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that never became a thing. Yeah, I don't know why <laughs> this didn't catch on in a bigger way and become the it's real such, new wave. It's such a great idea. But it's true. Like, when you hear Planet Claire right away, you're like, that's an old school, like, like sci-fi soundtrack sound that they're just doing for four minutes before lyrics pop in. Yeah. Look, I and I mean it as a compliment. They are an example, few as they are, of a very well-known popular band that no other band sounds like. No, it's true. They are doing a very singular thing. And this early stuff, like, it clearly is not precious. Like, they do not want to impress you with their flawless vocal (laughs) harmonies. And they are dancing on that line between the artsy strangeness and, like, straight up, like, five-minute surf punk groove. 
and they'll, they'll throw again those little like comedy skits in the middle where they just like do character voices like they're true to themselves the entire time and like I hope you're into it because I I, I take I texted to Adam this week like if you're not into it like Planet Claire into Fifty Two Girls is a good primer for what you're going to get because it's either like the thing over here or the thing over here or something in between. Like that is just what they're going to always do for the rest of this album. And if you're not into it, oof, it's going to be a long ride. <laughs> Buckle up. You know, I think Tom's the one that often talks about sincerity. Yeah, I, I, I don't detect a lot of it here. I think I just don't sense that they took any of this very seriously. So it feels like a big joke. But I, as see, a I, as I a listener, I feel like I'm not in on the joke. I feel like they they commit to this sound and this thing. Like they're always and it. It's weird to say that you can commit and be authentic when you're clearly in performance art character mode. <laughs> so maybe they are committing to their roles and their their characters, if that makes any sense. Like more I, so than like committing to being the most stellar musicians of all time. I I like think they're, that they're I think that like if Fred Schneider came to your dinner party, he'd be insufferable. I cannot imagine that he'd actually he'd be like, what is this? I don't like these roles. Your curtains suck. I, I don't picture that he'd have like a very restrained character. I'm going to throw 12 roles at you. This role's name is Mark. And this role's yeah. name was Larry. He brings his cowbell. Fred, did you bring your cowbell? Yes. Does Fred put Why, it down? Yes, always. <laughs> Put it down, Fred. All right, so we're going to jump in, and the first track we're going to hit here on our focus list is called Dance This Mess Around. Adam, does that not make you feel a little better? Oh my God, I wanted to punch myself in the throat. I'm just asking. <laughs> it's rough. A little rough there. I, my, my first note is they have some very interesting ideas about harmony and what goes yeah. together. <laughs> I don't think that word applies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're stretching it to its absolute outer limits. <laughs> they happen to be singing at the same time. Yes. This was actually my this was my favorite song. I called I, I it, dig this one. Yeah. I called it a mission statement for the but it was kind of a low bar, Tony. Sorry, don't don't get too excited. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I get that. I get that. But I I thought this was this actually had cleverness in it. It made me laugh. That they do all sixteen dances and they list some of the dances, <laughs> the hypocrite, the shy tuna. Dances. They're a big fan I, of just listing things instead of list, right. Yes, the list thing. Again, mission statement. You're right, Rob, because if you like lists Oh, baby. <laughs> the B-52s commit to lists as well. <laughs> Stefan from SNL was a big... <laughs> but I, I just like wrote down, is this either not punk at all or the most punk thing that's ever happened? <laughs> I think that's them. Yeah. This tra- yeah, this one transported me a little bit. It's fun. And it was, it's fun. And it was, as you mentioned, a scant four and a half minutes as opposed <laughs> to some of the other true. jams. That's true. It was focused. It was lean. Um, but yeah, I, I, th- I think it's clear that this song, and if you, you know, another one in the album, Hero Worship, 
Um, I think it's most um, on display. When Cindy hits that place where she does the grunt squeal with the lyrics and she's just doing this and like <laughs> they don't care. They just <laughs> let it be. And it becomes about that energy and the vibe and the sound she's making and it kind of working on like challenging what quote singing is. Like if you're just enjoying Which we've yourself, talked about before. yeah, and you're and you're lost in like the silliness of it, and just like what is happening in front of me, then you're gonna have a lot of fun. So I I, I appreciate what they're going for, but like we figured singing out like seven thousand years ago, right? Like, <laughs> you don't need to challenge my concept of what singing is. We know what that is. I don't know. I think they have some pretty different ideas. <laughs> I specifically need Adam to answer for this because it's been too many of these podcasts talking about singers. This is true. They, they I, I, Adam, to me, I who, feel like who they despises had a, Madonna. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just don't care for her voice. <laughs> so picky. I need, I need to, I need to really put you against the wall here. I want to hear your explanation because you don't seem to be complaining as much as I would expect, Adam. Is that correct? So I, I, I think Katie Pearson can actually sing. So she's the one that was on one of uh, three she, singers can sing. She, <laughs> she did the song right. She she's mostly featured on Rome as well as uh, is it an REM yeah, song? Yeah, shiny, shiny happy, happy people. people. Thank yeah. you. Yes, that song sucks so bad. <laughs> I'm just saying, if it's a question of whose voice I despise, I despise the least. You it would be listed, hers. I know we haven't mentioned that you know REM's also from Athens, Georgia, and I right, assume right. without Fred Schneider, you wouldn't have Michael Stipe, perhaps. But right. you really just mentioned the worst that's, REM song. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to find another example that I could think of where she actually sang. I actually think that uh, "Shiny Happy People" is better than "Stand in the Place Where You Live." Oh, oh, yeah. oh that's <laughs> terrible! That's too. She is. terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I wouldn't call what Fred does singing. So I don't even know if I would keep it in that realm. It's more, I don't know, Lou Reed spoken word. Yeah. Uh, the, the blonde, what's, what's her name? Cindy. Sorry. Cindy. Yeah. It's terrible. And <laughs> the other one, the redhead wig, Kate. <laughs> just refer to them by their wigs. Uh, that would be Katie. Hers is the least offensive. And I feel like she has the most technical skill in terms of hitting notes. Right. But are you saying you, first of all, there's a name for what Fred is doing. I it's a German word uh, called Sprechsagang, and it's an expressionistic oh. approach that's somewhere between singing and speaking. So would you call Lou Reed? Is that what he does? Maybe. Or would you consider Lou Reed more singing? I don't know, but Lou Reed wrote down lyrics at some point. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. That's that that's not a that's not a question. And Lou Reed occasionally hits melodic notes. My feeling about this band is that they to be fair to what Tony's saying, I have to kind of agree. He's not disagreeing with this, that they had clear sort of guidelines for what this band was and what it wasn't. And I have yeah. a feeling, you know how they always say Seinfeld, they sat the writers down early and often and they said, no hugs, no learning. With <laughs> right, this band, right. it was like no melody yeah. under any circumstance. <laughs> yes, where there would be a melody, we're just going to do a speech about the kinds of animals in the sea and what noises we imagine they make. <laughs> to be fair, I don't think that Fred Schneider would say that he sings. Like, I, he's not he, he trying doesn't. to sing. And, oh, like, right. a guy no, like Lou Reed all. is, like, trying to sing. Maybe trying, yeah. right. And, and still thing. happens to have one of the most imitable voices in music anyway. Yeah. It's just like... So, Rob, to, Rob, to answer your question, yes, this week has been hard to get through listening to these songs <laughs> oh, okay. over Thank God. and over and over again. Jesus. 
right. I did have to have a palate cleanse before this call because I've listened to this entire album probably 20 times through this week, which was interesting. Now, and dance this mess around. My, my notes here are that Dave Grohl said that Rock Lobster and this song uh, influenced him and his idea of stepping outside the box of what normal was. So that's kind of the little the little checkbox on on this specific song. I don't understand. I feel like there's a main line in this song that was Fred or somebody else just thought it was funny sounding. Limburger and then Limber Girl. Right. Like, oh I'm my God, no those, Limburger. those, those two words girl. sound similar. Let's write a song around it. So but it's the just way her that they, screaming. The way that she and they often deliver lines does that thing where they are singing it with such a weird cadence that you're supposed to not understand everything that they're saying and not be able to absorb it on the Mission way by. Mission accomplished. It's, yeah. It's called drunken improv. <laughs> yeah. right. Like, if she was coming at you singing these songs with actual emotion, like, it wouldn't work. I mean, but the, the studio is on a beach. Not, not like, they're out there drinking champagne out of coconuts on the beach or coming right. back in to do these takes. They've got their flaming volcanoes and they're having a blast. Right. You are right, though. It would be hilarious in a much different way to have some super emoting behind the just right. absolutely trite lyrics they're basically like, talking about like yeah like how do you translate voice. like goofy art poetry in like hippie 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 shake into something that like is doing the opposite of what they wanted to do you just can't it doesn't translate hey guys i i, I know we got this kick in surf rock thing going here but can we get your uh tourette's addled gay uncle up in the front of the stage <laughs> And he's just going to own it. He's going to be like, I am your weird uncle that you are embarrassed to invite to parties. Yeah, I'm going to bring that persona and I'm going to crank it up to 11 and then I'm going to put it on cocaine and I'm going to throw it on a microphone. And there we go. They do all 16 dances. Go, Fred, go. We got it, Uncle Fred. We got it. Thank you. That's good, yeah. Fred Fred in the nursing home is a good SNL sketch. <laughs> I feel like their greatest album is ahead of them. Right. It's the golden years of the B-52s. All the songs are about hospital food and catheters. Bouffants right. and bedpans. Right. That's good. All right. Let's keep, let's keep this train wreck rolling along, my friends. We're going to touch on... 52 girls. Let's give this a quick listen. All right, so this was actually my favorite song on the album. I think because it's the most punk, or at least there was a chord pattern. Oh, and any other reason? There was a, 
there was a little bit of a melody there. Hang on, I'm, <laughs> Rob's asking me, is there a reason I'm looking at my notes? Is there something else I need? It's no Fred. Oh, <laughs> it's the gals. That's a really good point. Yep. Yeah. I find that the, the songs uh, throughout their discography that are just the gals are really compelling in a different way. Yeah. Uh, I, so maybe I don't like Fred. <laughs> I like this one. This one moves. This one didn't have that pulled back sense to it. This one felt like it was kind of driving me forward a little bit. I We're, we were talking about um, Dance This Mess Around. I was trying to picture in my head, like, what party, what what that kind of party would have to be like and who would have been invited to that party that this yeah. would be the band at, that the whole room would have been rocking. And that... I couldn't. You would have hated every single person. I couldn't get. To, yeah, I couldn't get there. This one, I, don't I was think like, I was okay, ever part of that scene. I, I could be down for this this kind of party. The party that where this band is like rocking the house and playing this song. I could go to that party. That'd be a fine party for me. Oh, I'll, I'm I'm gonna dial it back for a second and say that the truth is, if I think if I walked into one of their shows at CBGBs in 1978, I would have been into it. Like I, I see how I would have been into it. It remind I just had a memory of Tom and I went to a random bar a few years back, and there was this band on stage, and they were all dressed like sharks. And they were oh, singing yeah. all these songs what? about sharks. It was like a <laughs> what? It was rock really, band. They were really into it. It was adult music, <laughs> but it was shark based. It's like Guara, but sharks. Anyway, and I was like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm into it. Like they committed. I get it. So, but it was hard to transport myself to that those kinds of clubs and that kind of weirdness via this record so i'm reviewing the record not the concept of the band i do appreciate a lot of what they did but to me the record just didn't really give me that that feeling maybe seeing them live would it would have solved it i i i dig this one and it 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 always follows planet claire on whatever album you're listening to it on and so i i know it's coming and i'm i'm so happy when the the drum kicks in in the beginning i just it these guys <laughs> they make me they make me happy they make me smile the whole time i'm listening to it because i feel like even though i'm not part of their scene i dig i feel like i'm in on the the gag i really dig what they do so like it's this one is catchy and punky and like the lyrics are sung in a way that again makes them hard to fully absorb and maybe hopes to give them more weight than they actually deserve to carry but completely unintelligible yeah Yeah, i read the lyrics i mean like they These are no the sense. girls of the USA, the principal girls of the USA. You can't deliver that stuff with any kind of real emotion. It's just silliness. <laughs> and I like the little drum, like doom, 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 like all the little touches that happen throughout the song. I super dig. Maybe it's because I've listened to this song and like this album so A many times over times. the years. But just, yeah, like this, when that drum beat starts at the beginning, I'm into like bopping around to 52 girls for as long as it's on, which is several minutes. You know, one thing I will say, um, I get the vibe from this band that, like, their scene would be super welcoming, and everybody would be kind of very nice, and you, like, they, what I mean they might the even, like, vibe. invite you into the band, be like, hey, you want to play some maracas or something right. like that? You know, <laughs> right. I've never played maracas. You know maracas. they do a regular <laughs> thing where, like, that. somebody does Fred's part in Rock Lobster for reverse or something. Like, do just, they really do that? Your turn! Come on up! Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> doesn't matter <laughs> to contrast again like if i i feel like if i went to like a velvet underground show it'd be just full of the worst assholes in the world <laughs> and i would hate it I, I i i always say that like i went to um that, that dj girl talk um played at the fillmore this is 
15 years ago or something like that. And I just remember the crowd was like the most aggro, angry, dickish, <laughs> I'm so cool, and why are you in my, in my way type of people. And it, I think part of it was because it was very cool at the time. And there is something to be said for music that is aggressively uncool. And this is definitely aggressively uncool. So, Rob, this this album, I can see why we would say I wouldn't like it, which I don't. But I'm wondering the difference for you and the the Velvet Underground album that we listened to, like the dissonant, um, the deliberately dissonant instruments that were purposefully out of tune and maybe the screaming and, and the lack of harmony and all that stuff. What's the line in your mind that uh, these two diverge? Is it the kitschy? Is it the, you feel like there's lack of effort or just curious? I because think he, I in, think in my hit, mind, I see a direct line. Like I understand. these guys listened to Velvet Underground and said, let's make a band. And they did their own version of that noise thing that Velvet Underground did. I get it. I see the line too. And I acknowledge that it's there. And even when in the Velvet Underground episode, I think one of the less controversial things you know we said about them was that they spawned a lot of bands. They made it seem like anyone could be in a band. I agree. And I think I even said about my experience with it something similar to sort of what Tony said, I think, about this record, which is that it made me realize, or maybe it was the Dave Grohl quote, that it made me realize that almost anything was possible. Yeah. So I, I see why that stuff is important, and I see that this is a part of that lineage. You just hit on two of the reasons, though. It's... It's perceived effort, which is you're telling me, you're telling me in the interviews directly that you're not taking it. Well, maybe not. Maybe seriously, maybe is the wrong word, but that you are. These are improvised jam sessions where you improvise lyrics. I get that you then learned what you improvised. Oh, and there's no overdubs, by the way, on the album or the very, very few was my understanding. Right, right. So and then you okay, then you learned it and now you're doing it in concert. I get it. But you didn't put a lot of thought and effort there's not the craftsmanship element that i think a lou reed has that i that that's probably a big piece of it um what was the other i, I think you, i think you hit on another top piece of it for me but i mean it might just it might just be taste it might just be kind of there's zero like we all agreed that lou reed had some level of pathos to him like he was writing sure. about some things that resonated mm-hmm. in a songwriting way and i guess i'm very songwriting oh i know the last thing you're right. There is something about my personality. It's just subjective that I've never been attracted to campy stuff. I've never liked John Waters films. Aforementioned John Waters. Right. Sorry, world. They're terrible and unwatchable. <laughs> it's just not my thing. Sure. I will say that if we're if we're going on the sort of the Velvet Underground versus the B-52s comparison, the reason that I find this to be more palatable is because I think that they know that they're not cool. And I think that part of what I dislike, I just, I really dislike uppity self-righteous heroin addicts who want to tell you how to live your life basically. (laughs) And um, the sort of like, I'm so cool. And like everything I'm doing is so deep and impactful. Like, you know, generally speaking, that because (laughs) gotta be such an asshole to try, you know, uh, it's not about trying. It's about like um, this is such a Tom opinion. Can we just say this is like so Tom? What this opinion? I, yeah, I'm fine with that. I just totally everything is that. about the perception of that they have of the persona of a person you don't know at all. All I know is what they all I know is what they give to me, man, and I'm not liking it. 
Right. I, I mean, I, I can dig the camp. You know, I think that's that's the, the difference here. Like this, their vibe just completely clicks for me and I'm okay with it. Like it, it, it this, these guys drop my pretense shield for music in, in a way that like other bands don't. Like I can just turn the part of my brain that says this is bad off and have fun. <laughs> can I be, right, I, I, can right. I, can I drop one more thing in here? Yeah. Which yeah, is, I really wanted to like it. Yeah. More. No, I, I, I imagine. I really did. I was ex- really excited I think the cover looks great. I know they're weird. I like weird. I wanted more front. Maybe it'll grow on me. I'm not denying that's possible. Yeah. But I don't know. Like this one, I feel like will it because it is such a weird ink blot of an album and a collection of songs. I feel like it will hit people the same way, you know, in 20 years as it did in 79. Like it's going to sound the same and hit you the same way. And like you said, Rob, like nobody else kept doing this. So it's going to be this weird singular thing that just exists in the music world. This weird little satellite in the, you know, musical cosmos mm-hmm. that it has continues to exist. Yeah, it just does one yeah. thing forever. Right. And people are going to look back on it as, again, like an inkblot. You're either going to be super into it or it's going to miss you completely, I well, think. They're certainly not going to be like, oh, this played out sound. Another one of these right, albums right. that I have to listen to. Like, you know, I get that. I like surf music too. This is kind yeah. of the first surf record we've done, and I like surf. I think it's a, you know, so I would, I like the rhythm like section. Where, of the band. Yeah, it's like, where are you on like the like the guitar? Like, I think some of the grooves are just fun. You know, I, no, I agree. I like the rhythm section. I just don't get the approach to lyrics in yeah. quotes or songwriting in quotes. As musicians, as, and you know, I'm, I'm admittedly again not one. When you're, if you're up on stage, and your job is to play that riff for six and a half minutes, is that hard? Does that how, get boring? How stoned am I? That's the question. I, I'm a bass player. The, like, That's what I do. I play. How the same many flaming for, volcanoes yeah. have you had? Yeah. <laughs> the flaming volcanoes make it really hard to stay tight. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not technically that challenging, but it requires a certain level of focus. Let's say. Yeah. 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 Like while while Fred is doing cartwheels and like throwing things at you from across the room, like well, you got to stay yeah. stay super steady. If you're Ricky Wilson and you got the smoke alarm and you're like, hold on a second, I got to hit this because literally there is a credit for Ricky Wilson playing the smoke alarm on this album, which is I had absolutely no idea before my, to me. my earlier text about smoke alarms. All right, let's roll this John into Rock Lobster, which is the not only the hit of the album. But likely the hit, maybe the second biggest hit of the band. Let's hear a little bit of this rock lobster. Is this song seven minutes long? Right. That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> That's called editing, Rob. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a so long I, one. I could have dealt with one minute of the main riff, and then at the five minute and ten second mark, 
the riff changes and i feel like that riff was the point where they could have like made it rock could have done something with it and so that's why at, at that 510 mark i feel like oh i wanted more of that maybe if that was a you know closer at the front of the song i would have liked it more i assume tony's gonna say they did that purposefully it, they i feel like they did change this one up like <laughs> like it starts doing one thing and then they change the sound like this is not this is one where they do, I feel like they do change things up and vary things throughout. So it isn't just one consistent, like, you know, riff the entire way through. Like, they screw around a little bit with the guitar parts to keep up with whatever, again, like, skit they're doing over top of it. So, like, when you start off and you're just, like, in a, like, bam, 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 da 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 and you're doing, like, okay, you're, you're in a box. And by the end of it, when you get to, like, see Robin going, ah! or whatever it is. So I, I just feel like there it, it's a weird balance of like that that surf rock thing supporting again their sci-fi skit weird poetry thing that they're doing, and not necessarily meant to stand out, but play like just a like a rock and music bed underneath it and like cradle that weirdness and like not detract from it while still being something that's like catchy and like vibey and listenable. It's 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 a weird thing. I just dig that sound. You know what this song and maybe the whole album really reminds me of this is an anecdote that involves tom but i'll tell it to all of you there was one time a few years back where tom and i rolled into a recording studio with some friends and did 100 percent improvisation for the entire weekend but recorded everything and we recorded hours of material probably and gave it all fun names and stuff but there was one song in particular where at some point during the jam someone started chanting pizza party and so <laughs> That was that was like the hit of the weekend, Pete's party. <laughs> this reminds me a lot of that song. <laughs> Rock Lobster is your pizza party. Exactly. I would I would not disagree with you on that. But one thing I will say, I can't call it singing, but whatever the ladies are doing on the backups is kind of amazing. Rock Lobster. We were at the beach. Everybody had matching towels. Somebody went under a dock, and there they saw a rock. It's not singing. It's making noise, but it's kind of undeniably cool. And like that fluttery vocal thing. And then just that part at the end, I I had not ever picked up before that 
Fred's going through the fish through list. The song. Yes. Right. And then they, they start doing again. their they impression. all the time. They do their impression of what they think all these fish sound like. Yes. That's funny. But again, <laughs> like, I think that Rob really hit the nail on the head. Like, it's like, listen, the Monster Mash was a hit because it's three minutes long. This is seven goddamn minutes long. <laughs> I did not need seven right. minutes of this. <laughs> but That's you wouldn't I... be there for it. I don't know. I just don't think the song with, with just the animal sound effects would... You know, would sell it. Well, yeah, yeah, would be listen, they could, they enough done. to stand alone amongst the pantheon of fine B-52s. Uh, <laughs> they the could have done two and a half minutes of the beginning of Rock Lobster. I'm pretty happy with that. And then they could, tacked I, on I'm a not denying they could cut a whole end. verse yeah. out and it's fine. Right. But, oh, thank <laughs> you for that verse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of air quotes around many things that we use tonight, like <laughs> vocals. <laughs> it's music, melody, harmony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, the other thing I wrote down, it goes kind of with the Monster Mash thing, but it, this sounds like holiday music for an alien world holiday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're playing in the cantina in Tatooine or something. No, I was maybe like alternate timeline New England where they have some like weird, like the start of lobster season or something like that. They're all playing this on their boats as they head on out. But then he's got to come back in with the PSA, please don't eat lobster. It's cruel. <laughs> so The complex emotional question. lives of lobsters need to be respected. <laughs> serious question. Maybe you could argue this every bit, but they had to be surprised this was a hit, right? Like, there's no way they thought this is a hit song. It was, I think it was, I think the best that they could have done at the time was do something weird that nobody else was doing. And catch on as a novelty. And if they got a modicum of success doing that, like that was that's encouragement, right? If you start out in a Chinese restaurant and you put out your weird rock lobster song because Fred wrote a stupid poem and you all decided it made everybody laugh, so let's record it. And it worked. You know, keep going. Have fun. Let's see where this takes Listen, us. I think that they have they abound with confidence. Let's put it that way. Yes, I they, don't, are, I don't they commit them. to yeah, this thing yeah. that they do. Tom and I did not have the confidence to release Pizza Party, but no, maybe, you know, no, maybe no. we should rethink that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, rightfully <laughs> so, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But by, by the way, R- Ricky Wilson, the guitar player, when he demoed this song for the rest of the band, he, he ran into a room smiling and said, I've just written the stupidest guitar riff you've ever heard, <laughs> which I think is pretty accurate. Yeah. We're going to keep this train rolling here onto what I, you guys are going to laugh, what I feel the low, the low point of the album is. <laughs> they're, again, loosely in air quotes, their cover of the song Downtown. Dude, I kind of love this song. <laughs> I kind of love it. I got to say. They almost got sued by whoever the writer of Broadway was, even though I don't, I'm sorry, downtown. I don't even know if it's close enough because they just But Zula Clark? The... Oh, no, come on. It's definitely a cover. No, it's Tony Hatch. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's totally a cover. Thank you. To- yeah, whoever the writer was, uh, that it just, it's so different. I don't even know that they would have a lawsuit there because they're just making sure. It's just terrible. 
So this is filler. For me, this was they were in the Bahamas and they're like, guys, we need one more song. (laughs) All right. Just I kind of know. Just add three more verses to Rock Lobster. It's easy. (laughs) (laughs) We already tried that. The 15 minute opus that is now Rock Lobster. (laughs) It's the equivalent of like uh, increasing the spacing between your lines to like make your term paper be longer. (laughs) Letting. Was that called the letting (laughs) between the letters? The kerning is uh, increased. <laughs> this this reminds me, uh, like this one puts me in the mind frame of like the goofy kind of filler junk that's on like like the Beastie Boys anthology disc two. That's just like goofy, like you know, boom and granny stuff that's just there, and it's just there to be there, and it clearly made them laugh. Like, but this one, like some albums include covers, and it makes me wonder why, right? Like, why that song, like they're not necessarily doing anything with it that makes it their own. It's just there. Right. But what these guys are doing with it transforms a song into something completely like almost unrecognizable as a cover. And it's three minutes. So it's a short little stinger at the end of the album. So like there's a silly put on accent there. It takes a moment to figure out what they're even doing. And I kind of wish that at some point, as we alluded to earlier, like Rob mentioned, like I wish they'd done a whole album of covers at some point, just as like a curiosity, because <laughs> they they manage. I want to hear how they manage to break other songs enough <laughs> that it becomes them, yes. their thing. You know, <laughs> Rob had a very concerned look. Rob, which is funny. You said it reminded you of something on the BC Boys anthology, which I get where you're going for, but this is not an anth like that implies no, no, unreleased no, this is material their, this is that their came out debut album. Only for the bloodthirsty fans who want to go through all the B sides and random studio <laughs> crap that your band went through to amuse each other. I don't know. And yet here we are as the closer it's not buried in the middle. The closer on the debut album. If you are getting to the end of your album, which is full of things that are going to make people ask what did I just hear and what just happened what is like they probably like they must have had the conversation that's like what can we do that is even weirder and like is even more completely unexpected for the end like this is again like that performance art part of them where like what can we like what can we take and and scribble on in our own way and make it like a punctuation point on the end of this weird album of like our poetry soundscape stuff that we just did. And, and they came up and they came up with what I believe is the worst moment on the album. Hey guys, you want to, you want to take that again? Nah, <laughs> nah. Let's hit the beach. I was gonna say, <laughs> right, which, which take do you think this is of downtown? I'm, I'm gonna offer an alternate explanation to what Tony posited there, which is that they were like writing lyrics is hard, and I don't want to do it anymore. So I'm just going to take 80 percent of the lyrics from another song and throw them on this, which is like, I mean, this has the vibe of like. I pre-programmed a Casio and I pressed oh, yeah. play and it's oh, big the way. drums and the doo doo because they they stole lyrics from uh, "Stop in the Name of Love" too on um, "Dance This Mess Around." Right? They, there's like some of the lyrics from "Stop in the Name of Love" on yeah. there. It's like lyrics are hard, and so other people have kind of done a good job on that. So I'm just gonna take that. 
this one definitely gave me uh, Will Ferrell and Anna Gasteyer mm. from the early 2000s <laughs> when they would do that song couple where they would sing songs, oh, right. whatever it was. They would pick pop songs and do crazy versions of them. This totally is is what I envisioned in my head of them sitting on that stage on that SNL set. This this put a very specific thing into my head, which I did genuinely laugh about. Um, and it might be the reason why I think this is my favorite song in the album. It evoked the memory of Groundskeeper Willie auditioning for Streetcar. He's like, <laughs> when you're alone and life is getting you lonely, you can always go doon toon. Doon toon. Yeah, that, I got a genuine smile out of that. I, that's got nothing to do with the song and the quality of the song, but it made me smile, which is more than a lot of the songs on this album did. There you have it, folks. We've been reviewing the debut album, the B-52s, by the B-52s. So now the only question to the group, does this campy shtick deserve to be on the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die? We're going to send things over to Rob first. Yeah, sorry guys, but I have to say no. I don't think this is worth listening to, or certainly not necessary to listen to. Worth listening to is a stretch. I'm not unhappy I listened to it. Now I understand the the subgenre of thrift store punk or whatever this is. <laughs> I I think that the the follow-up record, which admittedly I'm not I'm only glancingly familiar with, Cosmic Thing that has the other big hits on it, is a little more melodic, a little more tuneful, to me feels like a better melding of their sound. Tony can comment on that in his his take as well. But anyway, no, I don't I don't think this is an absolutely necessary one. It's aggressively strange, as has been said many times. Let's throw things over to Tom. Yeah, this is one of those ones where I, I was conflicted on it because I do like their vibe. I did not like many of their songs, and I don't approach this, again, that you have lived under a rock for your entire life and you have, have never heard any... Like, if you've heard Rock Lobster, you've heard this album, and you don't need to listen to the rest of it, and so... If this is completely new to you, sure, go ahead and listen to it. But for like the 90% of the listening audience out there that has heard Rock Lobster before, this is a no. Let's throw things over to Tony. Yeah, I mean, so so to Rob's point, like Cosmic Thing was their their first kind of comeback album after they lost Ricky Wilson. And they they took some time on their own and everybody went their own ways for a while and they weren't sure they were going to continue as a band. And then they came back and had that one, and it had tremendous success. That was kind of the one that is pr probably the reason we're even still talking about them at all, um, because that's the one that you you know their songs from. You you know Rock Lobster either as like a kitschy thing or because like Family Guy did it. That's about it. Um, but I I will say like I think it's obvious that I'm like the B52s Homer here. Um, their stuff hooks me really quickly, and I am along for the ride. And like Rob, it, back in like high school days, like you shared like a Zappa album or two with me for the first time that I listened to his stuff, and I have listened to lots more of his albums since. And there are a few that I like. But not a lot of them, <laughs> right? Like, but I've sampled them in the same way yeah. that, like, this is a curiosity. This is an art. This is an artist doing weird stuff and changing up all the time. The B52s don't change it up as much, but like their their early stuff, I dig because of like that like punky surf weirdness vibe, and I do feel 
contrary to what others thought, I do feel that they own this whole act. Like they they are committed. Again, if you're if your voice is a theremin, you are committed to doing that thing. Um, so while it, I I like their their 2008 album Funplex too, I thought that one was a lot of fun. Um, the B-52s make a playful, rocking, weird people dance party music, and I appreciate them for that. They do something that is unique, as we said, and it just makes me happy, and it challenges me in a way that other music doesn't. Um, so they are not like anybody else, for better or for worse. Um, is this the album of theirs that I would tell you you have to listen to? I would say, Rob, you mentioned Mission Statement before. This is the most quintessentially B-52s album. And while I like others more, I feel like this is the the most timeless of their efforts in a weird way. And the rawness is part of the point, I think, of it. So this like is a distilled version of what they do. And I'll say if you're going to listen to one of them, you're going to get what they do from this one pretty well. Ooh. That was so... a roller coaster of suspense there, Tony. <laughs> I know. I'm going to go with, uh, yeah, listen to this album. (laughs) All right, we're back to me. This is Adam. I'm super happy I listened to this album. I'm not necessarily super happy I listened to it 25 times. (laughs) This album suffers from the same things that uh, my gripes with the Velvet Underground album. So not much has changed in me as somebody who's listening to the music. I am going to say that you have to pass, not have to, but I would pass on on this one. This I, I've lived my life having just heard Love Shack, and I'm good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. We got three no's and a single yes. Tony, we will log it. Uh, you made a, a some some great points, and I'm actually glad we had the discussion because it, it has. While I don't necessarily love this album, it has given me a greater appreciation for what these cats are doing so now before we send it back over to tom for next week's album i want to thank our special guest again tony sadowski for wasting an hour and 12 (laughs) minutes of his life with us tony remind us again what you got going on your podcast uh let's see it's called you like the worst stuff you can find it wherever you listen to terrible podcasts and uh, (laughs) i i hope you'll check us out you can follow us on the twitters at the worst podcast i'm on there at tweets by the tony tweeting stupid junk off the top of my head all day long and uh, it has been a pleasure uh being here with you guys you are all smart men astute men men of culture and taste so it's been a blast were you on the same call as as me (laughs) (laughs) what the hell are you talking about All right, uh, uh, Tom. Let's. Who are you, Tom? Let's send it over to you. You know, before, unless you got something else. Before to say. I crank out the album here, I, I want to bring up one thing that it, it, it kind of blew my mind a little bit, and it, one of two things is happening. Um, we mentioned on last week's podcast that very weird Adrian Celentano song where he's the Italian guy who sounds like he's singing in English, but he's just using nonsense words. I heard that in a commercial yesterday on Monday Night Football. <laughs> it's in the background of like a Corona commercial. And we had and then previously when we did Odyssey and Oracle, the zombies record, this will be our year was like the sleeper, like 
good find. And a week later, I was hearing that on, like, Volvo commercials. I think we're somehow incepting ideas into the popular culture. <laughs> Trendsetters. It's, Trendsetters. It's good that you clarified the timeline, Tom, because someone who was just listening as a listener might not understand. They might think that we picked it up from the commercial. Of course. Oh, good point. Yes. yes. They have to know that we there. did it. We did it first. <laughs> anyway, either that or like targeted marketing has gotten like hyper creepy and specific. <laughs> anyway, we are going to pull out the Albinator 5000. It is uh, ready to go. Let's pick the next one. Let, let's pick something that's maybe a little bit more down the middle, not something that's going to be super weird here. So here F- we go. Fingers crossed. Albinator. Give us a good one. Give it a spin. Ah, Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. That sounds like a nice normal album. Yeah. <laughs> I think Wait, th- this, this okay. band actually has a bass player, right? I, I, I <laughs> would <change>? say so. <laughs> I would say so. Definitely going to be danceable. I'll put that out there. <laughs> I'm excited for that one. That that should be that should be good. I I feel like that has that really weird iconic cover. Um, Oh yeah, uh, is it somebody buried up to their neck yeah, or something? That's the one, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I I do know that one. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know the album very well, but awesome. Yeah. Exciting. Definitely a change of pace. Cool. All right. So everyone, make sure you go out and listen to "Maggot Brain" by Funkadelic. We will be digging into that next week. As always, you can send us some feedback. We have an email address. It's 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Did we get everything wrong? Did we get everything right? Let us know your thoughts. Send us an email. If it's relatively coherent, we will read it on the air. If not, it could be a new B-52 song. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for 1001 Album Complaints, I am Adam. I'm Rob. I'm Tom. And I'm Tony. Hey, hey, do I get to say boosh? You know what? Yes. Boosh. I'm going to perform my poetry now.